Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Friends, it's a pleasure and delight to be here today with Professor James Leffler, who is the Jay Berkowitz Professor of Jewish History at the University of Virginia. He's the author of Rooted Cosmopolitans, Jews and Human Rights in the 20th Century. That book recently won two prizes, the 2019 Association for Jewish Studies Schnitzer Award for Best Book in Modern Jewish History, Mazel Tov, and the 2019 American Historical Association Rosenberg Award for Best Book in Jewish History, Mazel Tov. At UVA, he teaches courses in Jewish and European history, international law and human rights, and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and he's a faculty fellow of the Religion, Race, and Democracy Lab. Professor Leffler, thank you for taking time. Thank you very much. A pleasure to speak with you. So to jump right in here, in your book, Rooted Cosmopolitans, you profile five Jews and their contribution to the development of international law and diplomacy. What historical trends made uh, made Jews so prominent in this field? Sure. Well, I was curious about that question myself, and I had some assumptions going into the research for this book. I thought, like many of us, well, the Holocaust, right? Jews are victims of anti-Semitism. Um, and I also thought uh, tikkun olam. Jews have a, uh, we have a terrific old tradition of ethical reasoning. Um, but when I looked specifically at the people inside the story of who, who gave us things like international human rights, crimes against humanity as a legal doctrine to punish the Nazis, all kinds of things like that, I found something else linked to them. Um, by and large, they were all Jews who came up, uh, came of age after World War I, not World War II. Um, they were activists involved in Jewish life and Jewish politics. And um, surprisingly, what linked them was that they were deeply involved in Jewish political life, most of them um, with Zionism uh, and with Jewish nationalism. And that uh, turns out to be very important for understanding where human rights comes from, uh, as well as the Jewish pathway into it. Very interesting. So, so as you mentioned, several of these Jews you described who were instrumental in international diplomacy following World War I, such as Svi Hirsch, Lauterpacht, and Jacob Robinson, were also ardent Zionists. And at face value, such a trend, some might suggest, seems paradoxical, where if the role of international law is to create a, a utopian national order, rather than creating a nation state for Jews in particular, uh, wouldn't th would that contradict the goal? How were these Jews able to navigate a tension of a, of a state just for Jews and sort of this universalistic vision? Sure. Um, it's a wonderful question, and it's one of the, the, the hardest questions um, for us to think about today, because there is so much pressure and polarization when we think about these topics, right? Zionism and human rights. Um, so the answer is this. Uh, like Jews before them, uh, you know, these are people who came up acutely aware of what it means to be a minority, to be small in the world, to be small in number, um, to have big dreams, but to recognize that you will never have an empire. You will never become the British Empire 
or the Roman Empire. Uh, and so you have to have ways to imagine what the world could and should look like to protect you and protect other people. So what I think really links them um, is a sense that Jews are a minority and thinking about international law was a way to protect that minority and other minorities. And it was also a way um, to, to pair that minority, a, a sense of collective identity, who we are, our religion, our culture, our languages, that they should be protected as a minority from threats. Um, but they also recognized that the way you act in the world is to have um, a homeland, to act like a nation state, because that's the way the world is trending. So they saw both of these things as interrelated. And they imagined themselves as building a, a better version of the world where every people gets to have a nation. Because today, that not all Jews are going to need to live in the Jewish land. Uh, and there will be non-Jews there. Uh, and the Jews will continue to live in a diaspora. So for them, when they thought about law, when they thought about rights, they thought about how do we not erase the particular and all become universal or all cling to a particular. They thought about blending them. And that's what they were trying to do. Very interesting. So you mentioned that your perceptions of the role of the Shoah were actually shattered a little bit, but I wonder how did the Holocaust theologically, philosophically, morally, politically influence the actions of the people you described in your book? Of course, those are a bunch of people and it's a complex question, so it's hard to profile, but, but what are some common themes here? So the first common theme is you know, these are people who all spent two decades essentially trying to prevent the Holocaust. Wow. The very things that we think of as the greatest crimes about it, the physical elimination of Jews, the attack on Jewish institutions, they were already fighting against this before the Holocaust. So it was not something that snuck up on them. Um, it was something that they feared as the worst possible outcome and they were trying to prevent. So when it happened, their responses reflected their own struggles. And the first thing that they felt when they saw the Holocaust was not, how can the Nazis do this? How can the anti-Semites do this to us? Their first thing is, how can we stand up in the world as Jews and get the world to take us seriously in our claims? And already in 1940, they're saying, how do we punish these Nazis? Even before they've perpetrated much of what we know as the Holocaust, these Jewish leaders were saying, we want a seat at the table. We want to be heard, and we need to do that. It is as important that we are heard by our friends as it is that we call out our enemies. And so the Holocaust was an event they tried to process in real time. Afterwards, um, they faced some of the same struggle. We might think that they immediately said, now the world has to wake up. But actually they said, no, now the world has to see what has happened to us, and that the Holocaust has a moral lesson for humanity, but part of that is recognizing us as a minority that suffered. So they were actually instrumental in building the Nuremberg trials. But one of the main failures they had is these people wanted there to be a Jewish voice. Jews should be able to testify, not simply as victims of um, Nazi aggression and anti-Semitism. They wanted to be able to say, uh, we are Jews who've lost something as Jews. Mm, fascinating. So today, uh, there's, there, there's a quite clear anti-Israel, and some would even say an anti-Semitic bias in international organizations such as the United Nations and the like. Um, how do you think this became the case? Right. So I talk a lot about that in, in the book, um, Root of Cosmopolitans. And I, I emphasize that some of this has to do not only with the spillover of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, not simply because of some generic anti-Semitism. A lot of it has to do with politics. People I write about in the book 
after having spent decades being kind of heroes at the UN in the late 40s and in the 50s, began to find themselves turned into pariahs. A lot of it had to do with the Cold War. The Soviet Union um, weaponized a lot of images of uh, anti-Zionism anti against Jews. And um, when Jews began to talk about how to fight anti-Semitism, it was the Soviets who pioneered a lot of techniques of discrediting Jewish um, spokesmen, Jewish NGO activists by saying, well, you must represent Israel, or if you don't specifically deal with the conflict over there, you're not legitimate here. And um, not surprisingly, others embraced that. So I think the broad strokes Cold War can help to explain a lot of that. Um, and then, frankly, I think a lot of it does simply have to do with something we still confront today, which is um, the political uses of anti-Semitism and Israeli-Palestinian conflict that different groups would say privately to some of these uh, activists, we're sympathetic to you, but we have to vote over here because over here, they're the people who we have an alliance with. And um, I think it's worth recovering that truth because it helps us understand that the world is, is not just a black and white set of people who are evil or good on our side or their side, but people struggling with political alliances, which are a fact of life for activists today in the Jewish world and beyond. Fascinating. Okay, so uh, just the last question for you today, uh, kind of a broad one, a practical one. What, what do you think are some of the um, particular unique roles uh, that Jews can play today as human rights advocates that's unique to the Jewish community and significant globally? Yeah, thank you. I mean, our greatest challenge as advocates is the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It doesn't go away, it enters into all conversations and it allows people to challenge our motives as well as it forces hard questions on us. But the challenge I think is an opportunity because it means that we can tell people, and this is true for Americans as a whole, that instead of a yes but approach, we can have a yes and approach. We can say that is a problem, we engage with it to try and resolve it, we have an obligation to try and resolve that conflict and we wanna work on this over here. Instead of saying, you know, don't force us to deal with this, saying we, will, we do deal with this because um, we are more than one thing at once. And the, the way Jews hold together, particular and universal, is a, is a challenge, but it's also a challenge that Americans face. And we want to say, what does American politics do for the world or at home, as well as what we imagine um, we owe each other as citizens. So I think it's a model for us uh, all um, to try and hold different commitments at once. And that's what we need to do. And I think that's what the people in the past have showed us how it's hard, but possible to do. Friends, be sure to check out Professor James uh, Leffler's Rooted Cosmopolitans, among other works. Thank you so much for your time and scholarship and inspiration. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you.